Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. And today is Friday, so my co-host is Benham Bentalibu, my friend and colleague at FDD. He's also a senior fellow where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues and the militias and so much more. Benham, great to talk to you on this Friday. Great to be back with you, Bill. Happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday as well. I'm really looking forward to the weekend. Um, we've got a little bit to talk about, uh, a lot going on, uh, reports that Iran sending ballistic missiles to Russia and the U.S. Administ- the Biden administration saying they can't see evidence of it. U.S. saying they might impose uh, or are planning to impose additional sanctions on Iran for supplying Russia with drones and missiles. We got a report that the head of the IRGC went to Iraq to to talk to the militias um, to get them to suspend attacks. And then we'll get into the Houthis and what's been going on in that war that isn't a war, according to the Biden administration. So, Benham, let's uh, let's start at the top. Let's there's a report out there at Reuters. Uh, it's an exclusive report. Um, it says that Iran has sent um, hundreds of ballistic missiles to Russia. They've been shipped. They're claiming there's been at least three shipments that have been shipped via the Caspian Sea. Um, Benham, let's let's get into this. Do we know the types of missiles? How many? What is the capacity of these missiles? What can they hit? And do you think this will be a a boon for Russia? Well, I think this is um, really what we're seeing, particularly as we get up to the second anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war and, and how the West quote unquote, I don't mean just NATO, I don't mean just America, I mean everybody who's trying to stand with Ukraine thinks they're able to stop Russia or delay Russia is largely one, through sanctions to kind of slow Russia's military industrial base, and two, with some kind of weapons, uh, some offensive, like the, you know, UCAVs and other kinds of drones that we saw early on in 2022 in Ukraine, so that Ukraine can strike back at Russia or to halt Russian uh, offensives and attacks, and then defensive weapons uh, to be able to shoot drones and missiles and stuff uh, out of the sky. But the advantages that Russia has in terms of ammunition and manpower are magnified by the advantages that Russia has from states like Iran, but also North Korea and less so China, that support that defense industrial base. So if we're, we're trying to stop Russia's war, uh, Russia is benefiting from essentially this new axis of evil or axis of tyranny or axis of authoritarians, whatever you want to call it, that is underwriting its defense industrial base. And while the Reuters report remains unconfirmed, by the U.S. government, um, the fact is, it's really a matter of when, not if, Iran is going to send ballistic missiles to Russia. And I, I mean this because we already had an own goal of strategic proportions vis-a-vis Iran and Russia by letting this missile embargo expire uh, at the U.N. in October of last year. It doesn't mean that the U.S. and the U.N. and the U.K. and the E.U. have not done great things to issue penalties on Iran for you know drone sanctions, but here. The message Iran got was that it would only get a slap on the wrist if it ended up proliferating these missiles to Russia. So step number one is, you know, taking stock of this battlefield. This is what Russia can do, and this is how Iran sees it, that if it does this missile proliferation, the U.S. didn't even bother risking shaking things up at the U.N., so if it does end up sending these missiles, at most it's going to get a slap on the wrist. Two, we really can't afford to just levy a slap on the wrist to the Iranians on this, because if this happens, this would be the furthest ever Iranian ballistic missile proliferation in history, meaning we have not had Iranian ballistic missiles end up this far outside of Iranian territory. This is a game changer 
And if they're being sold, much like the way the drones are sold, drones were sold for cash, for gold, for allegedly Western uh, battlefield weapons, like anti-tank weapons, uh, for allegedly a contract for advanced Russian fighters, and for allegedly even Russian support to Iran's space program, imagine what the Russians would give the Iranians for ballistic missiles. Now, to get to the heart of your question, what kind of missiles were these? Um, and even if they haven't been sent yet, what will be sent? Likely, uh, when this was reported in 2022, there were variations of a single-stage, short-range ballistic missile, all-solid propellant, called the Fateh series. The Fateh series, Iran converted uh, from the IRGC. Uh, the IRGC in Iran helped convert the Fateh series via a series of rockets, Zilzal rockets, essentially, that previously were spin-stabilized, and Iran gave them you know, slightly different warheads, guidance sections, fins, finlets, and turn rockets into missiles. They can carry up to, but usually less than, up to, uh, you know, 400 to 500 uh, kilogram, kilogram uh, payload, uh, ranges, you know, 250 to 300 uh, kilometers. Iran has expanded this missile several times to create variants like the Fata 313, which they fired at U.S. positions uh, in January 2020, uh, like the Zulfagar, which they fired uh, several times uh, at uh, positions of ISIS in Syria, if I'm not mistaken, um, and various other, even medium-range versions of this weapon. Iran, however, in August of last year, for the first time ever, participated in a military expo in Russia and didn't bring the Fateh, the short-range ballistic missile, or some of the more advanced versions that can go up to 700 kilometers, like the Zulfagar. It showed a mock-up of a missile called the Ababil, um, which goes under 100 kilometers. And this is, you know, Iran's close-range ballistic missiles, variants of the Zuhair and Fat series of missiles, which kind of function like cheaper Gimlers or Attackums or Storm Shadows, smaller, uh, probably less effective versions uh, of those. And the Reuters report, unfortunately, did not mention the Ababil, even though in August 2023, Iran brought a mock-up of the Ababil to Moscow. And in September 2023, when the Russian defense minister came to Iran, he visited a defense expo in Iran and specifically looked at the Ababil. You layer on top of that more recent Wall Street Journal reporting that said the Russians were still interested in this deal and specifically mentioned the Ababil and specifically allegedly went to Iran in December and saw tests of this projectile. You know, you get to see a story of, okay, if some Reuters stories are not bluffing, but engaging in braggadocio and bloviating, so what? The U.S. should not have to wait uh, for these missiles to be transferred to come up with a punishment because Iran is sending more and more drones. It's helping Russia build drone factories. And it's only a matter of time before these missiles are transferred. So let's not in my view, recreate the same strategic mistake and let penalties lapse and only follow up a threat. Let's try to preempt a threat for the first time, particularly after, I would say, given where Russia is in Ukraine now, two years of relative failure in Ukraine. But I'm, I'm going to read the statement from Kirby and then uh, ask you what you what you th whether you think they've actually been delivered or not. So the the John Kirby, who is, I believe he's the spokesman for the National Security Council. Uh, he said that uh, we have not seen any confirmation that missiles actually have actually moved from Iran to Russia. We have no reason to believe that they will not follow through, end quote. Um, according to Reuters, uh, they, they quoted several of their unnamed Iranian sources that indicated the shipment had gone through. They, they gave some specifics that, uh, again, that there has been at least three shipments that have gone through the Caspian Sea. How effective would sanctions be? Well, first of all, do you believe that the shipments have gone through, or do you think that they um, that uh, they have they haven't yet? You know, this is a, a very interesting situation where 
the incentive to misrepresent certainly exists for those Iranian sources speaking to Reuters. You know, they want a status boon. You know, this regime uh, has gone from the strategy of deniability for proxies to a strategy of making this a calling card. You know, that you first, if you want to fight with Iran, first you got to fight with its proxies. If you want to fight with Iran in the region, you got to know it's a global threat. You got to know it's a multi-domain threat, multi-region threat. So in some weird way, the regime has an incentive, or at least those sources who spoke to Reuters have an incentive to lie or to misrepresent. But on the other hand, that incentive is tampered by the fact that, well, if Iran admits to this transfer, it's going to be opening itself up to more pressure. So it just goes to show you how little they fear some of these penalties. And I said this about drone, and I think I said this in early 2023, and we should probably write something together on this, a necessary but not sufficient strategy. You and I have talked about necessary but not sufficient for the Houthis and necessary but not sufficient for the Shia militias in Iraq. But sanctions are necessary but not sufficient to stop this weapons proliferation. So to me, it's irrelevant if the, if the missiles have come or are coming, because as a matter of fact, we haven't seen them in the Ukrainian theater just yet. So the shipment issue is one that is going to require a whole range of options. On the one, you know, public diplomacy, diplomatic, you need the E3 and America on a near daily basis, you know, beating the drumbeat on this thing. Iran, if you do this, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. That's just the, the messaging. Two is we need more sanctions against the drone infrastructure, not just the air, but the sea. You know, you mentioned that important part of the, of the Caspian Sea trade. Caspian Sea is the world's largest lake, and it's happened to be shared by uh, several countries in the Caucasus and Central Asia, but most importantly, Russia to the north and Iran to the south. And these two tend not to listen to international law anyway. So patrolling this trade on the Caspian Sea is going to be very, very hard for us. I would say impossible. <laughs> Essentially impossible. Yeah. We can issue dictates, but you know, to think one of those countries on the periphery, which either is not beholden to Russia or, or Iran, is going to be able to listen or be able to punch back, um, you know, I would say, see me after for the bridge I'm selling. You, you anticipated my next question, which was, can we even enforce this? Was, is this even, you know, do the sanctions actually make a difference here? And I, I would answer, the answer is no. I mean, you look at the countries that are bordering the Caspian Sea, and none of them are going to, you know, base U.S. naval forces, not that we even have access to it, or even a, probably even allow overflights to, to monitor shipping. Um, the U.S. already has sanctions against Iran for providing drones. Am I correct on that? For Russia's sanctioned left and right. As you said, they're ignoring them. You know, I, I'm in agreement with you. If, if they haven't gone, if they haven't been shipped, they very likely will. And this is, might, be, might even be some signaling, by the way, that these weapons will be shipped if they haven't been already. They probably exactly. They probably could be using the Reuters piece to test the waters. And if they see the U.S. still hemming and hawing for the Kirby statement from the AP story you read, which tries to contextualize the political story, uh, which tries to contextualize, I'm sorry, the, the Reuters story, then they may press ahead. Uh, listen, I'm not trying to say that sanctions are going to be irrelevant here, but the rest of that cocktail is very important. So you got the public diplomacy stuff. You got some of the sanction stuff. We need to sanction actually more of the Iranian defense industrial base and the front companies and networks that do this sale. I don't think sanctions can serve as a physical impediment. Like we can't do lawfare here to stop these sales or stop these shipments, but we can expose the ones that have already happened or are about to happen or punish the ones that have happened. And then from that comes the most interesting, which is if for some of these more precise weapons, Iran is reliant on anything from abroad, there has been reports that at least for Iran's space program, the U.S. has had a you know intelligence policy since uh, at least the Bush administration trying to feed defective parts into known Iranian procurement rings. You know, I'm not saying to keep that illicit procurement channel open for the Iranians, but you know, one can say uh, if you know the drones they've sent to to Russia for use in Ukraine have so many Western components. Well, maybe if you keep that door open and try to get some of these Western businesses 
to not be subject to punishment, but be subject to some kind of very potentially interesting scheme to send along things that they know are going to be diverted to Iran that are faulty. That could go a long way as well. And on top of that, you know, if you, on top of that intelligence option, you layer on another intelligence option, taking a page from the Israelis, which is the Israelis use drones to target a drone production center and drone depot uh, in Iran in early 2022. Uh, I think, uh, especially in this period of time, this is something the U.S. should, you know, either get the Israelis to do more of on the missile side and cooperate with them there or do solo. And again, uh, you know, I don't like or I'm very cautious about taking the fight to Iranian territory, but that's taking the fight overtly. Taking the fight covertly also gives the regime the same incentive to not have to respond in the same way as if it's public. And this is not missile strikes. This is not something that big. This is cyber sabotage and most importantly, limited drone attacks. And not even big US, you know, expensive drones. I'm talking quadcopter kind of locally controlled three to five kilometers through whatever networks the Israelis are using to engage in some of these mobbings. Um, and doing that on the missile side could also um, give us quite the quite the boon because there was a, a story, I don't know if it was Times of Israel recently or Reuters or Wall Street Journal or AP, that they're all kind of blending in right now. But when the Russians were in Iran, they allegedly were going to visit that drone depot that the Israelis uh, ended up striking. And once they struck that depot, allegedly some of the Russian uh, you know officials who were in Iran did not even leave their hotel. So you can thwart the trade this way as well. And then lastly, and last, I promise is the last one, um, you want to make sure that wherever these missiles are going, that the actor that is going to be subject to these missile strikes, A, has the defense architecture they need. So we know that there's already a, not just a limited number of patriots, but an even more limited number of interceptors the Ukrainians have for those patriots, for these missiles, which have a drastically different flight profile than the drones, which are low and slow, and this is high and fast. So very different threat profile. Um, and B, that they have tools to respond to positions that are launching the missiles at. So, you know, FDD and one of our friends and colleagues, Brad, uh, him and I and a few others at CMPP, and I'm pretty sure you would agree with this, um, have said that if Iran ever does prove that it has given these missiles to Russia, the U.S. needs to double down on the attackum sales or attackums transfers to the Ukrainians. Now, we should have no qualms about something that can go 300 kilometers uh, in, in Russia, and I mean, all, all, in, in Ukraine, or potentially even touching Russia, uh, in a world where uh, the Brits have given, I think, the Storm Shadow, which I think has 250, and the Biden administration already said that they would uh, respond uh, and send attackums. We should send more attackums to make sure that the Ukrainians can fire almost in the left of launch way at the positions where, through good ISR, we or they or others can detect that the Russians want to launch Iranian missiles. So I know that's a whole cocktail, but the point is, there is not just one way to stop this. You have to do the entire thing. Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, there, go the full range. I mean, it's sanctions alone won't do it. Again, the necessary but not sufficient. You know, we've fallen into that trap so many times. I just remember at the beginning of the Ukraine, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, the belief amongst uh, serious, supposedly serious people in Washington that Russia would collapse under a, a sanctions regime and the Russian economy is actually doing okay and they've upped their production and they're able to recruit and pay their soldiers and whatnot so these it's like you said we have to we have to hit the hole i'd like to see one of those ships if we could determine that it is indeed transporting uh missiles to you know find its way to the bottom of the caspian sea that would be a certainly a good option as well uh and if we don't have to take credit for it you know that's the thing it seems like this is something that really and it's a whole nother topic but we can't keep secrets anymore about covert actions. Everybody has to take credit. Everyone's a chatty Cathy 
at at the CIA, at the Department of Defense, at the you know at the at the White House, and you know sometimes these things are more effective when we don't know actually know what the source is. Indeed, I'm with you. A whole nother topic there. Well, let's move on to the Iraqi and Syrian militias after the strike. God, how many weeks ago was that? That killed three American soldiers. Oh yeah, it, it was. It was at least three weeks ago. Yeah, in Jordan, um, the U.S. responded in a pretty significant manner. Um, there's a report out there that uh, Esmail Khani, who is the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, which is basically the special operations branch of the IRGC, um, he traveled to Iraq in, in late January in order to convince the the Iran's proxy militias to to dial back or even suspend the attacks on the U.S. forces. Um, have you seen any evidence that this is true, that he's traveled there? Um, we have seen a reduction in attacks, uh, I think, since the U.S. strikes. I've seen reports unconfirmed that there have been some small attacks on several U.S. bases, but nothing that's made it into the press. And, and the report that came out that cited Connie's travel said that there hadn't been any attacks against U.S. forces since the strike, since the U.S. launched its counterstrike. Uh-huh. So... Uh, this is this is interesting because the first thing I would say is we need to disaggregate the Iraq, Syria, and, and now, unfortunately, Jordan theater from the Yemen theater because what has continued uh, is the Houthi attacks. And even remember in, I think, late 2023, when you had the ceasefire extended several times, uh, the vast majority of the stuff had indeed slowed down outside of the Israel-Gaza uh, window. And that slowdown we saw in Iraq and Syria. And ultimately, we saw that slowdown uh, in Yemen as well. But we saw that slowdown in Yemen take more time. So here again, Yemen is proving to be a different theater. You know, this is a different proxy with a different length on the leash and a different relationship to the patron than those in Iraq and Syria. So that, that is number one. Uh, number two uh, is, you know, that's, by the way, good, good way to put this. You know, Connie is in Soleimani. Uh, yes. You know, everyone has talked about this. Um, and at a time when Iran may want to pull the reins, there are reports of other militias, particularly Asai Bahlul Haq, fighting, I forget what the name of the newest iteration, Saraya Adam or Saraya, the, the, the Saraya Al, the, the newest version of the... Mahdi Army? Yeah. Yeah, Saraya Al-Salam. Saraya Al-Salam. Yes. Uh, of, of Asai Bahlul Haq engaging in skirmishes uh, in Iraq during this period when the, when the Iran-backed Shia militias are not firing at uh, the U.S., that there is inter-Shia militia conflict at this moment as well. And the reason this matters for us is, okay, so they're not shooting at us, but they're still kind of shooting at each other, which proves, again, uh, the Baghdad government, the government, the central government, is not only incompetent to prevent the firing against us, but they're also incompetent to prevent the firing among their own population. If you can have, you know, a, a whole set of skirmishes, almost a mini internecine Shiite civil war going on, um, that raises a lot more questions about your competency and the effort Washington should be putting to on Baghdad to get them to restrain more of these militias than ever before. So the fact that we need to lean on Baghdad to do something that also, you know, we can raise that as more of a question. Three, Ani in general, it was reported that during the uh, Iran-Saudi FTSE, the, the diplomacy that led to the detente, that led to the reopening of the embassies, and ultimately that led to the lull in attacks in the summer of 2023, which led Sullivan, U.S. National Security Advisor Sullivan, to say the region is the calmest or most peaceful it's ever been, um, one of the militias at that point in time opted out of these, uh, uh, this, this, you know, stand down order. And here again, uh, we saw, I think, Kataib Hezbollah treat the stand down order a little bit differently. 
they used a little bit different language. They didn't just say it was pressure from the Iranians. What they put out in Telegram was very different than what uh, Iranian semi-official press put out about Kataib Hezbollah and the entire Iran-backed network standing down. So there is conflict. There is tension within the different Shia militias. No one is denying each militia of agency. And in a world where Iran is reliant on them, like we mentioned, there's this other academic model where there is local actor agency. And these local actors uh, can talk back to their patron. Uh, and I think we're, we're living right now in a world where the patron can still pull on the reins. And largely, you do have a very brief, 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 tense period of peace or a tense period of, of no official strikes. But this will be, again, just a blip because, again, the tone and tenor of the escalation and the capability and intent, all of that remains the same. And it's in the hands of uh, Ismail Khani and this entire Iran back network. So that's a roundabout way to say not to take too much solace. In a, in a brief period of time, um, because I do believe, yeah, Iran may de-escalate in one theater because it's stepping up in another theater, and that may easily take us to Yemen right now. Real quick, before we turn to Yemen, uh, how much of what we're witnessing here when a group says, when a, supposedly Iran comes in and says, hey, let's stand down on these attacks right now, um, and a group opts out, how much is it possible um, that this plays to Iran's strengths, that it gives the notion that Iran doesn't really control these militias, that they really are independent actors, that it gives Iran further plausible deniability. Is that a possibility here, uh, Benham? To the extent that one of the militias would formally buck the order would give Iran more plausible deniability. But when the vast majority of them aren't, uh, it would mean that the Reuters story that uh, was copied by several others talking about this trip by Ismail Ghani to Iraq, um, does mean that there is a return address for many of these Shia militias and that the leash is being pulled in a foreign capital and that foreign capital is Tehran and you know the force behind that leash is the Guard Corps. So if you're pleased by the relative silence, let this be a vindication of the thesis that you need to fix your policy towards the patron, which is the one on the back end of this leash. So you can't you know, have it both ways here. Yeah, no, absolutely, you're correct. That's why I raised the question. You know, and, and on uh, that was yeah, that was metaphorical. That was that was me kind of talking to the admin. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> on Surah Al Salam and, and Asib al Haq. I mean, that's a complicated relationship. Asib al Haq formed from its leaders were Mahdi Army commanders back in the day. But even you know, as much as you know, I know there's theory. There are people out there that'll tell us, oh, Muqtada al Sadr, the head of the Mahdi Army, he's anti-Iranian, he's an Iraqi patriot and nationalist. But it was always interesting to me that whenever he runs into trouble. In Iraq, where does he go to seek shelter in Iran? So I always look at these things, and sometimes I think Iran wants us to think one thing and wants us to. They like to keep us guessing on on all of this, and um, you know. So I, I, I'm I'm not shocked that there's clashes between these militias. I mean, look, following Shi uh, Sunni terror groups, you know, I've watched in Afghanistan, uh, you know, clashes between the Taliban and groups like the Islamic Movement, Uzbekistan, and. And then, some, then, you know, the big heavy hitters come out and, and patch things up. But at the end of the day, these groups, they all report to their master. So I, I always look at when I see these reports, I'm always a little bit skeptical as to what the motivations, because the reality is, is we don't know what type of conversations are happening behind closed doors. That's, that's the problem with not just these reports, but also the, the, obviously everyone knows the benefits of going so into the weeds and looking at Shia militia telegrams. But the day to day of that drumbeat, if you, the, the precise close monitoring of it, you can fall into it and it takes on a life of its own. And then you kind of divorce that day-to-day -day drumbeat from, you know, this big picture thing that we're dealing with, which is, is there command and control? Yes or no. What is the relationship like of each 
you know, militia to each patron. Um, the, the big picture questions will get lost. And then when sometimes one of these telegram stories or one of these very localized stories makes its way uh, into the press, which has not been following this issue in breadth and depth and puts its own spin on it, uh, and that spin gets taken up by, you know, Western capitals, uh, then you get a misunderstanding of the Shia militia picture uh, and a probably a misapplied policy towards it. Yeah. And, you know, one one aspect of this that, that's, that Iran likes in this is U.S. officials will be maybe, well, we need to work a little more closely with Iran can be a partner here. I see an opening. We could get the Iranians to get the militias to dial back the pressure. And this is something the Biden administration, the Obama administration as well, was very interested in you know, reproachment with Iran and, and seeing them as a partner instead of instead of as an adversary or an enemy in the region. So I'm always, you know, whenever I see these things, I'm, I'm wondering, what's the real motivation behind this? What is Iran's real plan here? All, all understanding that they they do essentially control these militias. Yes, they do. These militias do have agency. Um, but at the end of the day, they know what side their bread's buttered on. But let's uh, let's turn to the Houthis. Uh, ben, I mean, listeners, you have a comment on that. Yeah, I, th- I think we're on the same page there. So, um, boy, I'll tell you what, if you're reading CENTCOM uh, daily, reading their press releases, you might actually think there is a war going on in the Red Sea, in the Babel Mendeb Strait, in the Gulf of Aden, and in Yemen proper itself. And every day, the U.S. is launching strikes targeting Yemeni drones, anti-ship cruise missiles, anti-ship ballistic missiles, launch sites, radar sites, uh, even unmanned underwater vessels or basically drones on the ocean. Um, the, the administration still insists we're not at war with the Houthis. I would say, again, I would encourage you, go look at, go follow CENTCOM on Twitter or go to their webpage and read their press releases. One, one day, there were so many attacks, it took me quite a long time to read that. Actually, these are the press releases or a paragraph or two. And this was several days ago, I read the, one of the press releases and I'm going, wow, this thing isn't going to end. There was so much exchange of fire. Um, but one thing that really stuck out is we're seeing an increased uh, usage and of the unmanned, what they call the CENTCOM is calling unmanned underwater vessels. Again, basically drones on and under the sea. Benham, what, tell us a little bit about this technology. Is this a new threat that we're experiencing? Uh, it's a relatively new threat. I mean, in general, the more of these smaller, fast attack crafts uh, are being bequeathed to the IRGC Navy. The really big question is what are some of the uh, unmanned underwater uh, vehicle capabilities that Iran might give its proxies? You know, we already know about some of, I think the one of these small speedboats, they were even, you know, remote controlled suicide speedboats, they were called, and the U.S. did intercept some of those. I think they were the Yamehdi speedboats. I'm, I'm blanking on the full name, uh, but the U.S. even had them at the, the petting zoo display at, at the Joint Base Anacostia Bowling a few years back, um, which did show signs of wiring and electronic equipment coming from Iran. I don't believe we've recovered a whole piece of this uh, unmanned underwater capability, but this is something that when Iran talks about you know, closing the Strait of Hormuz or potentially mining the Straits, it's not just physically blockading it, and it's not just stuff we saw in 2019, which is either drone attacks or limpet mines. It's the ability to engage in unmanned underwater warfare. Obviously, at the, you know, subsurface level, the U.S. still has mastery there, but in places like the Persian Gulf, where the water is shallower, um, this might be an area where Iran might have a little bit of an advantage, um, certainly against uh, our allies and partners in the region, with us, it might be a drastically different capability, given what we can bring to bear. But the fact that the Houthis now are flexing this as well, particularly right around the day of the terrorism designation being formally applied to them, uh, just tells you that this is an actor that is evolving. Um, you know, just like ISIS, it can innovate in plain sight. 
And I think unlike a lot of the other, uh, you know, terror groups that Iran, you know, has either created or co-opted in this larger acts of resistance, the Houthis actually have, I don't want to say industrial base, but they have a capability to innovate upon. You know, they're not starting from scratch. Um, you know, insurgency is not new to this region and the Houthis are not new to, you know, this kind of warfare. Um, so whether it's, you know, turning air-to-air -air missiles into surface-to-air missiles or finding a way to take that something that is surface and making it a subsurface capability, these are battlefield innovations brought to you by, you know, the necessity of that battlefield and the ability of both the patron and the proxy to adapt together, you know. So I'm I'm quite sure this is a capability brought to you by Iran, but being executed by the Houthis. Um, so you know, I would say expect more, not less of this uh, as as the war continues. Yeah, it's it's an interesting threat because it's one. Look, you can detect um, drones, you could detect anti-ship cruise missiles and anti-ship ballistic missiles and shoot them down. Um, and we have done, been pretty good at that. Um, actually, very good at it. This is a definitely an evolving threat, one that I'm not so sure we know how to deal with. So, and you know, the other interesting thing too, and uh, you know, the right, while the Iranians are providing the Russians with drones and possibly ballistic missiles, one things um, the Ukrainians have done very effectively um, as, as many problems as they've had in the last year with dealing with the Russian offensive and also the failed Ukrainian counteroffensive, it's the Ukrainian strategy of using, and a big part of that is these unmanned, underwater vessels or and surface drones as well has essentially driven the Russian Navy into the ports into the Russian ports um and out of this uh out of the Black Sea so um you know that's that's certainly an interesting development and I, I find it a little bit ironic that the you know the Iranians are providing one capability and it's it's helping the Russians but the you know the Russians are on the receiving end of this uh this newer technology I would say with the unmanned underwater and surface vessels. Amen. Well, Benham, great catching up with you. Thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure. I always look forward to my Fridays. Me too. Thank you for squeezing me in. Thank you for having me. And uh, something tells me we'll have more, not less to discuss next week. Yeah. You know, when, when we come up with our, what did we talk about today? I think it takes us all of, uh, what, two seconds to figure out three to four items to discuss and what we leave on the cutting floor, you know, it's uh, probably five other podcasts every week. So, but we'll do our best to cram it in next week. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.